We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Chapter 5 in Esther. So Ezra, uh, Esther rather had agreed to uh, help the Jews. She asked for prayer um, because she thought she might perish. And so in Esther 5, the Bible says, Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight, and the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. Can you imagine a man with that kind of authority that's accepted to have that kind of authority? That's what a king is, right? That's what a king is. Did you ever stop to think that the Lord Jesus held out his golden scepter to you and offered for you to come and touch the tip of it and receive his grace and his mercy? Yeah, he loves you. He extends that scepter, and I implore you to go forward and touch it. And by the way, Jesus is a king with all of that authority and more. He's the king of this king. He's the king of every king. Amen. The king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. Well, he's feeling generous today. Half the kingdom is on sale. So Esther answered, If it pleases the king... Let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. At the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom. It shall be done. Then Esther answered and said, My petition and request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king... And if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So I wonder what was going on in her mind. Was she like at the last minute like, oh, I, I can't say it right now. I gotta, I'll do another banquet. That's what I'll do. I'll put it off for a day. <laughs> I don't know. She had a plan, and uh, she's working that somehow. So... So Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and called for his friends and his wife Zeresh. Then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him and how he had advanced 
him above the officials and servants of the king. Moreover, Haman said, besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared, and tomorrow I am again invited by her along with the king. Yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. A little anti-Semitism there, huh? Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows be made fifty cubits high, and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. And so reads the word of the Lord. I ask if you would turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, please. Luke chapter 5. And I hope they'll be able to share with you something that is maybe a fresh look at a familiar narrative of Scripture this morning as we look at Luke 5. Let me read as we begin. So it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two boats standing by the lake. That's also known as Galilee or Tiberias. But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, "'Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch.'" Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when, he had, when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. And it happened when he was in a certain city that, behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus, and he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then he put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing. Be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them, just as Moses commanded. However, the report went around concerning him all the more, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Verse 17, Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. And behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, 
They went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. When he saw their faith, he said to him, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or rise up and walk? Now that's a hard question, I think. (laughs) Both are difficult, aren't they? Yeah, both are very difficult. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on and departed to his own house, glorifying God. They were all amazed, glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. Well, just a little outline of the events here. Jesus, as you recall from our reading, taught from a boat to a crowd on the shore. He directs Simon Peter to catch some fish. uh, Simon Peter realizes he's in the presence of holiness and feels great shame because of that. Jesus encourages Simon and says he will have a new job to catch men. He calls Andrew, Simon, James, and John then to follow him. Following that, he heals a leper and makes him ceremonially clean, and then he forgives a paralytic and heals him in a demonstration of his power to forgive sin. Now, I've gone over that very quickly. I'll just kind of go back over it and do some explanation now uh, as God permits. Let's just pray for a moment, please. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us as we approach the text of Scripture this morning, that we would glean much that is profitable from it, that you would draw us in to you. Lord, would you watch over our minds that they might not be distracted from what Luke and what your Spirit wants us to understand here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I uh, noted as I thought about this passage that Jesus helped humanity with some significant problems. I I start with one that's maybe a little bit on the lighter side, but I noticed that Jesus helped Simon with his work issues. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes people say, you know, I, I, I I can't pray about my work, I can't pray about school or whatever, that's too small, that's unimportant. I don't take that view. I don't take that view at all. You can pray about all of the things that are involved in your life that God has assigned you to do that seem to be where God has you. Ask for help. Um, You know, the fishing business did not fare well the night before, and they toiled the whole night, got nothing. Jesus also created food for crowds of people, 5,000 at once, 4,000 at once, and we don't know of others, but those are recorded for us. Now, he did use normal means in both cases. It wasn't entirely miraculous. I mean, Peter still had to throw the net overboard in the way that fishermen do that in order to enclose a bunch of fish. But the location and the supply of the fish were things that were outside of Peter's control. God took care of those. 
And may I encourage us to trust the Lord to take care of things outside of our control while we do those things which are the means that God has appointed for us to, to do things, to work. You know, you're, you can't ask God for good results if you're going to be lazy. That's your work, right? You've got to work. You have to do the job. So, you know, those, though, that's not to say that, you know, the means by which God has given us to do that work is all of us and nothing of God. God gave us the means to do that. He gave us the ability to think, to work hard, to have energy, to do, you know, to have the wisdom to know what to do, when to do it, and all of that, the tools to do that work, and so on. So we leave uh, what God controls to him, and we, we do those things which he calls us to do. But the Lord also helped with physical illness, with fever, with various diseases, with uh, dropsy, with uh, blood loss. Remember the woman who had a flow of blood helped one person with a bad back. Remember that? Bent over and could not stand up. The Lord healed that. Leprosy, even death on several occasions, raising people from the dead. Jesus healed all of them. Jesus also healed spiritual illness like demon possession, addiction, all kinds of um, things, unbelief, of course. The main issue in this kind of category of spiritual illness is sin. The Lord showed in his interaction with the uh, paralytic man that he was concerned about the man's sin, not just about his paralysis. And sin is at the base of every human problem, isn't it? It's somewhere along the line. Now listen very carefully. I am not saying that you sinned and therefore you have this thing that happened in your life. It may be somebody else sinned and you have this problem in your life. It may be that some oppressor caused this to happen in your life. It may be just that Adam and Eve sinned and plunged the world into chaos and judgment and thus the natural disasters and the man-made things that occurred. But don't, don't take the false theological position that... Uh, or, or thought that I'm saying, you sin, therefore you get what you have coming. That's not how things work. It's not a mechanical system here where you, you do tit, God does tat. You know what I mean? Tit for tat, or the other way around, however it goes. But anyway, you get the idea. God doesn't work that way. In any case, um, sin is the hardest problem to fix of all, isn't it? And for these areas in which the Lord uh, worked in and amongst humanity, helping with their work issues, we could say, physical issues, spiritual issues, the, uh, it's easy for us to lose sight of the fact today that God is great and His Son is great and that He did these things. You know, we look at work issues. Well, just work it out, you know, physical issues. Go to the doctor. Get your medicine, do your exercise, watch your diet. We have all these prescriptions that we can solve these things. And for even spiritual issues, spiritual illness, we have the idea that if you get enough counseling, education, therapy, medication, all that can solve all those things. Not at all. Not at all. We need God's help today just as much as those people did back then. Notice, too, uh, just as we make some observations about the text, that Peter hesitated to obey the Lord. 
Did you notice that? However, at your word, I will let down the net. You know, Lord, <laughs> kind of a dumb idea, but okay. <laughs> kind of reading into it a little bit, but he said, look, it's not the time for fish. The time for fishing was at night when they came up to the shallows. Now they're out in the deep in the heat of the day. We can't, we're not going to get anything. But notice that Peter resolved to be obedient anyway. You remember the parable about the two sons? The father said to the one son, you know, go into the field and work today. And he said, no, I'm not going to do that. But later he repented and went. And the second son, he said, yeah, I'll go, I'll go. But he never went. Who did the will of his father? So you may struggle sometimes to do the will of God. You may even initially say no. But you know what? When it comes down to it, if you get your kind of head screwed on straight and you say, yeah, I got to do what God tells me to do, and you do that, you know what that's counted as? Obedience. (laughs) It's counted as obedience. Yeah, that's a little delayed obedience. We understand that. But the bottom line is that you obeyed didn't perfectly obey, but you did obey. And his obedience, in this case, was rewarded. In general, obedience is rewarded. Not necessarily immediately. Maybe we could say in some some fashion, obedience is. I mean, think about it. If If you obey God, you have a relationship with God, you obey God, you know you've obeyed God, doesn't that feel good? And that's a reward? That's that's a reward, the satisfaction of that. But I'm talking about other kinds of rewards too. Here, a, a material thing. You know, the, the, the guy who's diligent will not lack. That's kind of a reward too, isn't it? The catch of fish that Peter made, I don't know what they did with it if they, you know, sold it and used all the money that they got to uh, support themselves for a few months or whatever. But the catch of fish is also an encouragement that God has a large catch of fish. Let me revise that. Men for Peter to catch. The souls of men. Now, would you look please at Peter's response? So they, they were overloaded with these two boats filled up with fish, over, you know, heaping over, about to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, how does he respond? He fell down at Jesus' knees and said, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. The the fish-catching miracle led Peter to jump to a proper, not, not jumping to a conclusion, but kind of jump over a bunch of thoughts in the middle that I'll share with you just now and have um, a, a conclusion that had to do with his soul. And so what did he do? Well, he saw the miracle, and then his mind jumped to, Who is it that just did this miracle? Well, he's thinking about this. There's there's something about this guy and God that's connected here. And then he's looking at the holiness of this man, and he's reflecting on, I've never seen this man sin before, ever. This wasn't just the, you know, I don't think this was just the very first interaction that he had with with Peter. There was a number of interactions, if you kind of look at it, leading up to them forsaking their nets and following him. He sees the holiness of Jesus. He then moves to the conclusion very quickly within the space of moments to the conclusion, I am not holy. He is, and he has all this miraculous power, and I'm nothing like that. 
And because I'm nothing like that, and I'm in the, in the presence of deity, you might not have fully understood that yet, but this is, you know what? You don't have to fully understand something for it to be true. He is in the presence of deity. Have you ever seen a depiction of Jesus in the, uh, a movie? Several movies have something like this where uh, I, th- I think Ben-Hur has one like this, and I-, I can't think of the other names of the Jesus films, I'll call them, not, not the one particular Jesus film. But when Jesus is portrayed as just looking at somebody, and conviction comes upon them, like at the Roman soldier in one of those films, and conviction comes, that's because that believer or not a believer, that person is in the presence of deity, right there. Now, we don't know how many times that occurred. The Bible doesn't tell us that that specific thing happened. Uh, Maybe in John chapter 8, we could say something like that happened. Remember when the Lord wrote on the ground and everybody left one by one from the oldest to the youngest because their conscience struck, struck them? That sort of thing. Here, Peter is in the presence of deity. He feels shame. And then that feeling turns to the, feel, the, the need to physically separate himself from the Lord. Look, Lord, I need distance. You, you need to get away from me. I am not holy. I am a sin, sinful man, O Lord. I will say something about that in just a moment. Um, you can look at the notes here and see this, the four that were called here. We have Simon and Andrew, James and John. I won't major on that because that's just a part of the narrative you can you can uh, capture there pretty easily. Uh, we turn then to the leper. And what I want to do is I want to connect these, these uh, paragraphs together for you in your mind in the end here. The leper came to the Lord. He had a very serious case of leprosy. Did you see that? Okay, he didn't just have it on his hands or his legs or his arms. He was full of leprosy. He was well advanced into Hansen's disease or whatever variation of it that it was. And it's touching to read of his beseeching of the Lord, asking him to heal him. He had nowhere else to turn. Nothing in the medical establishment could help him. Afterward, when Jesus healed him, he said, I'm willing, be clean. Afterward, Jesus commanded the man to follow the prescriptions of the law of Moses. And, you know, don't tell anybody, but the news spread anyway. All of this is in the context of uh, chapter 5 when many people are following him. See verse, five, uh, verse 1 of chapter 5, it was the multitude pressed against him or about him to hear the word of God. And so he had to push out onto the boat to do uh, some more teaching. Um, I'm not overly impressed by the large crowd. Do you know why? Because in John chapter 6, in verse 66, the Bible says, and many of his disciples stopped following him and they went away. They were fair weather friends. Perhaps many of them were like the rocky and thorny soil that would receive the word of God but would not bring forth fruit. They wanted maybe to be near the Lord for the healing or for the bread, but not for the, the hard truth. Do notice that uh, after this episode with Peter, 
that it says in verse 11, they brought their boats to the land, they forsook all and followed him. It seems immediate and abrupt. There's some more interaction that went on between the disciples and Jesus. You remember how they met him with John the Baptist? John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So they they had some interaction with him over a course of a little bit of time. Nevertheless, their commitment was decisive, quick, and thorough. Okay? It was decisive. That's why some people talk about uh, making a decision for Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. Okay? Decisive. That happens at a time in your life. Maybe there's some buildup to it. You know, there's a kind of process of learning and growing, and then you finally realize the, 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 the wonder of the gospel and the beauty of it and the necessity of it in your life. And then I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. Thorough. I'm done with what I was before. I've decided to follow Christ. And so our decision should be for the Lord, decisive, quick, and thorough. Today is the day of salvation, quickly. Okay? You must decide. You must make a choice. Am I going to live for God or am I going to live for this crummy world and for myself? Am I going to live for material wealth and human wisdom? Or am I going to live for the God who made me and his son who died for me and his spirit who wants to teach and lead me? They decided to follow Christ. Now let me speak a little bit about the purpose of Jesus coming in his ministry. When studying the text... Here, I I thought to myself, what is it? Why is Luke recording these events? I mean, is this just a shotgun narrative where, you know, Jesus teaches over here and helps Peter over here and helps a leper over there and heals a paralyzed man over there? Uh, What, why is it? Why does Luke record these events? Why does Jesus do them? Are are they random events that show us various truths about the Lord? Um, I, I think they're more than that. They show us a bigger picture of the purpose of our Lord's work. We already know that Jesus came to preach the kingdom of God. Do you remember that from last time? Uh, He went to the synagogue in in Nazareth. He preached from Isaiah 61. Uh, They tried to get rid of him. He goes on to other places and and teaches the word of God after that uh, rejection there at Nazareth, at, at Capernaum. They wanted him to stay. He said, I can't do that. I have to uh, preach the other synagogues of Galilee. I have to go and preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also because for that purpose I have been sent. But there's something to it even more than that. He did not come merely to teach nice morals or principles of the law of Moses. What exactly did he come to do? Why did he perform all these miracles? And the text here before us, I think, gives two answers. One is what he's going to do with Peter verse, at the end of verse 10. From now on, you will catch men. And secondly, he came to do what he did to the paralyzed man, to forgive sins. He came not only to preach the kingdom of God, but to catch men 
and to forgive sins. To catch men, first of all, means to bring them into to kingdom citizenship. Now, you don't catch men the same way that Peter caught the fish. You don't catch them in a net. You don't catch them with the hook baited to, to disguise it. The net is the good news about the work of Christ, and it will do its work of drawing people in whom God chooses. When we believe then that good news, we're brought into the church, which is where we prepare to grow and grow for our uh, king's arrival. Now, Jesus came not just to catch men, but to train others to do so. Notice how he kind of focuses on these, these disciples, these 12, 11, and and focuses on training them to do this work. Peter, you're going to be catching men. Acts chapter 2 and 3 and 4 and 5, he does catch a whole bunch of men. He also came, though, to forgive sins, which means to remove the guilt of the actions done by one party against another. It means that he came so that God would cease to hold the iniquities of us against ourselves. The Lord did the miracle of the healing of the paralyzed man, and it's recorded for us so that we would know that Jesus has power on earth to forgive sins. And not not only for us, but also for the unbelieving Pharisees. They ought to have known that he had power to forgive sins. Now, just pause for a second, and let me ask this question. If he had the power on earth to forgive sins, what do you suppose he has now that he's in heaven? Any less? If anything, more. After his finished work, after he can plead before the throne of God his own blood, after he can be an advocate, 1 John chapter 2, 1 and 2, for us in his current presentation before the throne of God because he's completed the work. There's no other name, there's no other sacrifice, there's no other way. He's the way, and he has power from heaven to forgive sins. Tremendous. We have been washed and forgiven in his blood. Now, why doesn't God just you know, forgive everybody automatically on that basis? That's an attractive idea in a way. You know, Just forgive everybody, let everybody go to heaven and all of that. It's an attractive idea, I say, but if a person does not have a broken spirit or a contrite heart about their wrong, forgiveness is impossible. Why is that? Well, if somebody has a hard heart about the wrongs that they have done, they're just as guilty of them presently as when they did them in the past. Forgiveness of a sin presumes that the person who did the sin is not actively continuing that sin or related sins like pride and refusal to acknowledge that God is right. Forgiveness in general reflects that the person has turned away from their prior life, their prior sin of opposition against God. You know, God may, may forgive you know, that you blasphemed his name, but what if you're hard-hearted against him presently and still in effect blaspheming him? and you don't care that you blasphemed him, then you're walking in a continual sin all the time. And that's what unbelievers do, and they really want to do. They might not think of it that way, but that's what they do. That's what we did before we came to Christ. In this contrite setting, 
that is the contrite setting in which forgiveness is possible. The basis upon which God can forgive is not merely that he's a nice person. It is that the demerit of our wrongs has been taken by Jesus, has been covered, has been paid for, has been removed in his cross work. I'm going to pass over for a moment, the, uh, for this moment anyway, the notes about the miracles and just come to the application section of our message. What's new in this passage is not that Jesus can heal and not that Jesus teaches, but it's, it revolves around this. What's new is that he interacts with Peter and Peter sees how bad of a person he is. His case of spiritual illness is as severe as the man's leprosy who was full of leprosy. Then Jesus heals and cleanses that leper, impossibly full of leprosy, and Jesus thus demonstrates by this two things. He demonstrates willingness and he demonstrates power. He was willing to be associated with the man, to be close to him, And he was powerful enough to solve the problem of the man's leprosy. Finally, Jesus again shows his willingness and power to heal, but with an added feature, the forgiveness of sins, which is the most important problem of this paralyzed man. You know, he's not a poor man because he's paralyzed. He's a poor man because he's living in sin. Note the desperate need of Peter, of the leper, and of the paralyzed man. Notice that Jesus is willing to solve the need, and notice that he has the power to do so. Many people don't know that they need forgiveness. They're dull to that fact. Imagine a situation in which you or someone is, has wronged somebody else, but you don't realize it. You don't know what's happened. How do you feel when you find that out? And uh, supposing that it's a real offense, okay? It's not a, you know, a made-up thing or somebody took offense at something you said which they just need to kind of grow up and get over, okay? I'm not talking about that kind of situation. You really harm somebody, but you don't realize it. And you realize that, and you would be horrified to learn that you've hurt someone or not expressed sorrow or not made something right. But the person who is apart from God and is in this very situation, they don't know that they've wronged God. Strangely, too, we as humans can be concerned about our slighting of another person. You know, imagine, you know, Miss Perfect Manners, who doesn't want to hurt anybody's feelings and says sorry 5,000 times a day, and, and she's you know, very concerned that she's hurt other people's feelings. Perhaps not for the right motivation. Perhaps it's because she wants to look good. But let's just suppose that she wants to make things right. But what about our offenses against God? Are we as concerned about that, Miss congeniality, you know, mismanners. Is it, is it, we're not, we're not a, a concerned about offending God because he's big enough to handle it? 
or because we can't see him, because our reputation isn't stained too badly in the eyes of others. The truth remains that whether you know it or not, whether you see it or not, whether you recognize it or not, when you sin, you sin against God. But then another problem in this whole matter of forgiveness, is forgiveness even possible? Do you despair in your thoughts that, you know, you say, I I can't be forgiven. If there's a hell, I'm going there. I deserve it for sure. I've done too much. I'm too far gone. And you, you realize, well, I can't get forgiveness by doing extra good. You know, how much extra good do you have to do to undo the bank robbery that you did? doesn't matter how many good works, how much philanthropy. If you rob the bank, you're going to jail. Animal sacrifices don't do it because animals aren't made in the image of God and therefore of a different sort of living creature than humans. They don't have guilt for sin the same way that we do because they're not culpable for the fall. No, not even the snake. Does anyone have the ability to deal with your sin so thoroughly that it is no longer a show-stopping issue between you and God? The answer is yes. The answer is only found in the Christian faith. That is in knowing God through Jesus Christ. Notice how I define the Christian faith. It's not about keeping a bunch of rules. It's not about going to church. It's not about doing confessional. not about doing the rituals in the church. It's about knowing God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is not only able to forgive your sins, but he's also willing to do so. One reason that Jesus is able to forgive sins is because he died for sinners in their sins. You can imagine, he says to the man paralyzed, lying before him on the bed, just let down from the roof, your sins are forgiven because I'm going to die for them. Another reason is that Jesus has the authority because he is God. The scribes and the Pharisees were on the right track by saying that only God can forgive sins. They just stopped short of the right answer. They shouldn't have charged Jesus with blasphemy. They should have bowed down before him and worshipped him. They were seeing God incarnate before their eyes. And since sin was done against him, he can forgive it. I know I'm out of time, but the idea of this idea of forgiveness is so critical. One more moment, please. Can you imagine the the audacity of the Lord to say, I forgive you, your sins are forgiven? Can we say that today? No, there's a sense in which it's true that only God can forgive sins. However, we can declare, as Jesus authorized us to, sins forgiven for anyone who believes in Christ Jesus. Somebody were to come to me and say, how can my sins be forgiven? I tell them the gospel, and I say, on the authority of God above, your sins will be forgiven the instant you come to faith in Christ. Isn't that something? Isn't that something that he has delegated, the because of that power, delegated to us the blessing of passing the message to another human being who's in despair that your sins can be forgiven? Look, if you're a sinner... Don't do what Peter did. Okay, this is what people do when they get into trouble. Uh, They tend to isolate. They tend to go away. They tend to hide. Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. No, that's the last thing you want to do. 
You want to get close to Jesus. You want to come. You want to get... Jesus touched the man with leprosy. Touched him. That, that uncleanness didn't, didn't, didn't transmit to Jesus because Jesus is radiant purity, just blasting out holiness. Get close to him. Receive his help. Receive his touch. Receive his word of, of forgiveness. The, guy, the guys, that say four or five guys that brought this paralyzed man, they're like, we got to get close to Jesus here. we got to get so he, he, he can heal this man. Now, these people didn't necessarily come looking for the answer to their deepest need. But you know what? The Lord is gracious. He helped them with their deepest need, even though they didn't know what it was maybe yet. And he'll help you with your deepest need too. But don't run away. Okay? Don't run away from him. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Father, help us, I pray, as we close our service today. May somebody afresh come to the blessed realization that you are willing to make them clean. For Jesus' sake, amen.